Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvin Rajan, and in today's episode, we're joined by one of my past professors, Dr. Jamie DeWitt, a toxicologist who has a focus on a particular group of environmental contaminants called PFAS. Consisting of more than 5,000 substances, Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances are found in all kinds of commercial products, including nonstick cookware, waterproof jackets, firefighting foams, food packaging, and more. However, studies have shown that PFAS is considered a forever chemical, meaning that it can take thousands of years to break down. This can cause it to build up in the environment and in the human body. And there are studies that show that these substances are associated with reproductive harm, developmental effects, increased risk of certain cancers, and decreased immune function. Dr. DeWitt's research focuses on studying the effects of PFAS on the immune system. She also has extensive experience in increasing public awareness about PFAS, and she's testified to Congress multiple times. She even provided guidance in the creation of the PFAS episode of the John Oliver's Last Week Tonight show. Dr. DeWitt is truly an expert in the field, and she talks about the fascinating history of PFAS, what it's like to testify in front of Congress as a scientist, and what we can do on an individual level to address PFAS contamination. I loved having this conversation with Dr. DeWitt, and I hope you enjoy. Well, glad to have you here, Jamie. It's been a long time since we worked together on that PFAS project, and you know, it I guess feels longer because COVID was in between it, but um, I'm really excited to talk to you about PFAS today and and kind of the overarching effects of it in society. Well, I'm really happy to be here. And it it doesn't really seem like that long ago that we were working together on that project. I just pulled up some pictures and was surprised that it was in, I think, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was the beginning of college. We, you know, we're working on a project with PFAS back, you know, in 2019 and, and you were, um, you know, the PI for it and, and you really taught me a lot about it. Um, and I was kind of refreshing myself on PFAS and kind of starting with the history. It was really interesting to me that PFAS um, was created around the 1930s, you know, as this nonstick coating really marketed in cooking cookware and things like that and and marketed as this like revolutionary thing that made things so much easier um but what was interesting and from from what i was seeing is that there were studies being done even back then you know maybe in the 50s and 60s showing some potentially um negative effects of it or things that you know might have been a little uh iffy and things that we would want to know as society as a chemical that's being used so you know regularly in society And um, I guess this kind of information that was, you know, studies being done by companies and and people that were selling PFAS wasn't regularly, I guess, accessible to people. Um, And what what, what is your kind of understanding of the science that was around with PFAS and the understanding that people had back then um, in regards to PFAS? Yeah, well, I think it's important to remember that we didn't have an environmental protection agency until the early 1970s. I think it was 1972. So prior to then, oversight for health and safety of chemicals was was driven by different agencies. And so I don't think there were a lot of common approaches to asking questions about human health and environmental effects of chemicals, including chemicals like PFAS, which stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. And at latest count may include close to 10,000 individual chemicals. Oh my God. So we're talking about a lot of different compounds. 
So my understanding of some of the earlier data that was produced by some of the manufacturers of, of these compounds, and they specifically addressed two individual PFAS, one known as perfluorooctanoic acid or PFOA, and the other was perfluorooctane sulfonic acid or PFOS. PFOA is uh, commonly associated with the trade name Teflon, which as right. you said, is a nonstick coating used on cookware and other materials. PFOS was the main ingredient in Scotchgard, which was used as a protectant for fabrics. So you could buy a can of Scotchgard at the grocery store and spray your couch with it. So if your kid, you know, slopped syrup or something on the couch, it would just wipe up. Okay. Uh, so companies that made these compounds did perform toxicological studies on experimental animals, usually rats, uh, sometimes rabbits. They also collected information from the workers who had direct contact with these materials. There's actually an interesting graduate thesis uh, out in the public space written by somebody at the University of Minnesota who asked questions about the effects of PFAS on prostate health of workers and the potential for PFOS to produce prostate cancer in some of the workers. So there were a lot of data being produced very early on in the production of these chemicals and they really didn't see the light of day until a lawsuit um, was initiated in Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is where there's a specific PFAS production facility. So why these data weren't made generally or publicly available, I don't really know, but it's likely that we didn't have an environmental protection agency at the time. Right. So it's kind of harder to enforce, you know, ready access of that information, even though it was available. And I think another thing that is interesting is like, since they were, you know, created in the thirties and there was probably limited studies done in terms of at least health effects, it. I guess it's difficult to gauge, you know, what exactly the effects of it are because of the, the limited amount of time that they've had with them. Um, and so I don't know, like it just, I feel like there's multiple factors there and uh, in, in terms of understanding that. Well, you know, the 1930s is, you know, almost, it's going to be a century ago, <laughs> not too long from now. But if you consider that we've only had PFAS for about a century, that they've contaminated pretty much every space mm. on the globe, I think that's that's pretty frightening. Everywhere scientists look, they've been able to detect PFAS from the umbilical cord blood to ice wow. cores in the Arctic. So in under a hundred years, these compounds have spread all across the globe. And I think I think that's you know the biggest issue. These are synthetic compounds that right. are persistent, which means that what's in the environment now is going to continue to expose us into the future. And so when you continue to produce persistent chemicals, exposures will be ongoing and those known and unknown toxicities are going to increase in probability. And so I think that's one of the big concerns uh, about PFAS that we need to consider. Um, I think also when we think about types of diseases that are most common in the world today. These are chronic diseases right. like heart disease and cardiovascular disease that extends into the lungs, uh, stroke, other types of disorders. The leading cause of these diseases, according to a paper that was published in 2018, is exposure to environmental pollutants, mostly air pollutants, but water pollutants are also contributors. 
there are about 9 million, according to this paper, premature deaths a year from chronic diseases with this environmental factor. And the people who are most impacted are those living in poor areas, in poor countries, and children, regardless of their income level of where they live. So PFAS may be part of this concoction of environmental chemicals to which we are all exposed and which may be contributing to chronic disease burden in the world. Right. And that's, that's really fascinating in, in, in terms of the environmental impact. And then touching a little bit on what you said earlier, um, I'm taking in environmental health class right now. We were recently talking about um, bioaccumulation and biomagnification throughout, you know, an ecosystem. And it seems like if we were to leave these kind of chemicals just, you know, to do their thing and spread in the environment and contaminate things, the concentrations of them is just going to increase. And then eventually, you know, maybe the concentration at a certain point wasn't enough to cause any kind of health effects. But then as it gets, you know, more concentrated in, you know, the things in the environment that we're consuming and are exposed to, at that point, it's going to have a very significant effect to our health. And I guess that's the, the scary part. And, and I think we're in a position now where it's already causing effects. But if we're able to contain them and control them will prevent it from getting to a point where I guess it's more widespread like that. Yeah, that's the hope. Many environmental organizations are working very hard to turn off the tap. So they would like to see a complete ban on PFAS or at least emissions of PFAS into the environment. So that would require the development of closed loop systems for the manufacture and use of PFAS in industrial products and processes. Um, but even if, as I, as I said, if, if production stops today, we're still faced with the concentration of PFAS that are in the environment right, right. now. And not all PFAS have long biological half-lives. So we gauge bioaccumulation by how long a substance stays in the body. Uh, some PFAS, there's one known as PFHXS. It is a six carbon PFAS with a sulfonic acid. So it's sort of like PFOS, except it has two fewer carbons. It has an estimated half-life in humans of eight and a half years. That means if I ingested a gram today, and a gram would be a lot, then eight and a half years from now, I would still have half a gram in my body. But if I'm continually exposed to small amounts of PFHXS, then what's in my body will build up. And at some point, as you said, may reach a site in my body where it's going to produce toxicity. So people like to say that the dose makes the poison. This is a common phrase in toxicology. Mm -hmm. Many other factors contribute to toxicity, but what really matters is the internal dose or the dose of a substance at the site of toxicological action. So when there's enough PFAS present to, for example, activate a receptor that produces a toxicological outcome is when we have to be concerned about those internal concentrations. Gotcha. And, and kind of transitioning into, you know, your particular scientific background with PFAS in general. Um, my understanding is you do research in the effects of PFAS on the immune system. Um, how exactly do you study that in the lab and how, or what are some of the findings that you have seen um, from that kind of testing and research? So toxicolo toxicologists can take different approaches to asking questions about environmental chemicals. Some start at the molecular level. They might have a mechanism that they know is associated with a 
a particular adverse phenotype or health outcome. Uh, some toxicologists start with the phenotype and then dive into the mechanism. And, and I'm in the latter group. So we ask questions about the ability of PFAS and sometimes other chemicals to impact the ability of the immune system to rise to a challenge. So that's the best way to test the immune system. Uh, in my laboratory, we use experimental models that we can vaccinate and then ask whether or not the response to the vaccination is appropriate. And appropriate means, do they have the same response as a group that isn't exposed? So we, we really can ask about um, the vaccination response. In, in the lab, we call it the T-cell dependent antibody response or the T-cell independent antibody response. So B-cells are the cells in the immune system that eventually transform to plasma cells and right. make antibody. And so they can recognize some antigens or non-self substances by themselves. Sometimes they need the assistance of T helper cells to go, hey, B-cell, make some antibody against this. And so we can ask both types of questions. We also ask some questions about the innate immune system. We do some work with natural killer cells, which is, I think, a really great name for a cell, right? Yeah. Uh, they are play a really important role in tumor cell surveillance. So we can actually do some experiments where we take natural killer cells out of uh, our test model and mix them with cancer cells and ask mm. them, ask, can they kill the cancer cells? It's a really cool assay. So we do these functional immune tests where we challenge the immune system and see if it's able to do what it's supposed to do. But then we also are diving into the mechanism. So one of the things that my lab and many other labs have demonstrated for some of the PFAS that we've studied is that they suppress the ability of the immune system to make uh, antibodies. So I was going to say they suppress the ability of the immune system to make levels of antibodies that are protective, but I can't really definitively say that. We know that there are fewer antibodies made in exposed mm. organisms. And we, we know this is true for several PFAS. In fact, in 2016, the National Toxicology Program did a systematic or very careful review of the literature on PFOA and PFOS and determined that they were presumed to be immune hazards to humans. And this was based oh, wow. largely on their ability to suppress the TDAR, this T cell dependent antibody response. Uh, so we're asking some additional questions about B cells and trying to figure out why B cells don't make a good amount of antibody when PFAS are present. And so we're kind of going down the path of B cell metabolism, which is not my area of expertise. Fortunately, I have a research professor working with me who is an expert in bioenergetics. So we're really trying to ask about mitochondria in B cells wow. and how B cells use energy. And I have a really smart graduate student who's asking about where B cells may um, suffer in their pathway to becoming a plasma cell. So it's, it's a lot of really great mechanistic work, but ultimately we hope to understand why PFAS suppress the ability of the immune system to make antibodies. And hopefully we can turn that into an assay that will allow us to ask more questions about different types of PFAS. Because as I said, there's almost 10,000 individual PFAS. So there's a lot that we have to learn about many types of PFAS. Yeah. And it's like that mechanistic aspect where there's like a different interaction with so many different parts. Like you said, there's the natural killer cells and there's the B cells, and there's just so many parts of just, you know, one system, like you said. And then, and then now the way we understand PFAS is that it's 
multi-system, right? It affects like, you know, cancers are, are, are seen to, to be um, associated with PFAS and um, metabolism, all kinds of things like that. So I'm understanding like there are people studying PFAS at the intersection of each one of their you know, particular disciplines, whether it be in the immune system, whether it be uh, metabolism or cardiovascular, like it's just so fascinating how, I guess, broad this field is. And, and how, how is that interacting with people? I think you kind of touched on this, but interacting with people that are, you know, studying the same compounds, but studying them on a different effect. Do you find yourself collaborating a lot and maybe seeing uh, things, uh, interactions like that? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of really fantastic collaborators within the PFAS world. I think everybody with whom I work is really committed to protecting public health and understanding the mechanism by which PFAS induce their many different types of toxicities. And and you are right, they are multi-system toxicants, but we can't forget that systems interact. So I'm looking at B cells, but maybe B cells are suffering because they're not getting the right signal from the liver. It's, it's hard to ask questions about what's going on in an entire living organism because I don't have the tools to be able to ask every single question that needs to be asked, which is why we collaborate. Um, I'm working on some collaborative proposals where we're going to look at some signs of liver toxicities. Uh, I may be collaborating with some folks who are working with humanized mouse models to ask questions about interactions between um, their metabolic measures and the immune system. And then I also may be working with some additional collaborators to ask questions about how different types of PFAS are metabolized and how those metabolites might be toxic. So I think one of the things the PFAS community is good about is communicating. So we share information with one another. There was just a conference last week called Fluoros 2021, and it brought PFAS scientists together to talk about where we are and where we need to go. Right. And, and Jamie, one thing that, you know, fascinates me about your particular involvement with PFAS, um, you started off from my understanding, like on a scientific level, right. You were studying PFAS kind of in the lab and, and, um, looking at those effects. But since then, um, you have, you know, I remember back in 2019, I sat in on a med school class and you taught about PFAS with, um, someone who lived in a community affected by PFAS and talking about, you know, how medical students should approach a patient like that. And, and you were conveying this information about PFAS to medical students. And then when we went and administered the survey in a local community, you showed like how you conveyed PFAS knowledge to the general public. And then you've testified in Congress and conveyed PFAS knowledge in that context. So I guess my question is, where did you get that interest to, you know, go from your findings in the lab to then conveying the same information, but at so many different levels to, to, you know, affect so many different types of people. So I think with respect to interacting with the public and testifying before Congress, I've I've sort of been pulled into it. And, and I think I work very hard to communicate my science in a way that is understandable to what I like to think is a relatively broad audience. I think part of that is that I'm a first generation college student and 
I was raised with people who expect me to speak fairly plainly, not because my family isn't smart, but because they just wouldn't let me get away with behaving like I was smarter than them. You know, they don't tolerate that. Um, so, but in addition to that, I think it's really important that scientists learn to not only speak the language of the science that they have to speak, but learn to communicate their science beyond the, the walls of scientific journals. Because um, one of my most favorite scientists is Tyrone Hayes. He's a professor at UC Berkeley. He's done a lot of work with atrazine. And in one of his TED Talks, he said, you know, as far as I know, the journals in which I publish are not at a, a bookstore that most people can go to. So right. who, who's going to read my work if I don't make it available, you know, beyond those who are just scientists? So I think it's really important that as a scientist at a public university, I try to broaden the audience um, with whom I interact so that they know about what I'm doing and can ask questions and maybe make some criticisms and understand my approach. Um, it's why I'm doing the science that I'm doing. Right, to show, show like the actual impact on people. And like you said, this is like an, an, um, a contaminant that's affecting so many aspects of society. And you know, it's important that I guess you get in and talk to the people that are affected. Uh, how was it, how was it testifying uh, before Congress, and, and you've done it three times now, so I'm, I'm sure you're a pro at it now, but I'm sure that first time it must have been a little, I don't know, like a little different and maybe a little, uh, I don't know, scary or, or anxiety inducing. I don't know. How was that? The first time was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> the second time was terrifying. And the third time was still scary because it was virtual. I don't mm. think I don't think anything could prepare you for having to testify before, you know, our elected officials and they, they want answers because they're beholden to their constituents and they want to make educated decisions that, that are going to benefit their constituents, whether their constituents be an, an industrial partner or a community member. So yeah, it, it was terrifying. I don't really know what else to say beyond that. Fortunately, I had um, a, a lot of uh, people to whom I could reach out for advice and, and I found testimonies of uh, people who I admire. For example, uh, Heather Stapleton is a professor at Duke. She testified before Congress on flame retardants. So I read through her testimony. Uh, Dr. Linda, Bur Linda Birnbaum, the, the former director of the NIEHS and NTP, had, had uh, has testified before Congress, so I read some of her testimony, and then I also sought help from people who regularly testify. So I prepared myself so I would be a little less terrified, but it was still really, really scary. That and and in terms of policy and and thinking about policy making, you know, there are things that I guess the government's doing right, like you said, the regulatory environmental agencies that weren't around back then are now very much around and, and making policy changes that are really important. But as someone that is an expert in your field and are surrounded by a bunch of people that understand a lot about PFAS, what do you think are some of the shortcomings or some of the policy changes that still need to be made in order 
to address PFAS as like an environmental impact on society? Well, I think we still don't have any drinking water standards on the federal level. We have a health advisory for two PFAS. So there's a health advisory for PFOA and PFOS. And this is, this is at the federal level, I mean, by the US Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. I believe that they're moving forward with some efforts to establish some guidelines that would be regulatory guidelines for at least PFOA and PFOS. But I think broader action is required, whether it's on the state level or the federal level, it's not for me to say. Um, I mean, I certainly have opinions as a citizen, as a scientist, but because there are close to 10,000 individual chemicals within this class, I think we have to consider how we want to manage and possibly regulate PFAS. I've been associated with publications that have suggested that regulating PFAS as a class would be an appropriate management approach. And this is based on their persistence and or mobility and or bioaccumulation potential and or toxicity. So not all PFAS are gonna bioaccumulate and we don't have toxicological information on all PFAS, but the vast majority of PFAS are persistent and those that we've studied have some of those other characteristics of concern, which in the mind of those of us who put together the, this publication is sufficient enough concern so that we should be considering PFAS as a class rather than as one by one by one. There's, uh, some, there's also been multiple publications to suggest that persistence is enough. So if a compound is persistent, as we mentioned earlier, exposure is going to be continuous. So that should be a sufficient rationale for making management or regulatory decisions. Um, other countries have criteria for very persistent compounds or persistent compounds, and they have used those to make decisions about management in spite of lack of toxicological information, for example. So going from that policy level, right? So there are lots of things that we still need to be doing, but I guess in the meantime, what do people that, you know, may be exposed to PFAS or living in areas that are, you know, known to have contaminants like that, what can people like this do to prevent or to maintain and uh, mitigate their exposure to PFAS and better understand it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, right now, there's no proven way that people can speed the elimination of PFAS from their bodies. There, there have been a few efforts made with looking at some drug therapies that might help mm. to speed the elimination of PFAS and donating blood is, is, is a non-pharmaceutical way, but certainly you don't want your contaminated blood to go into another person's body. So it's not really a, a feasible alternative. So, so what people can do is focus on ways to eliminate PFAS from their lives if, if they can. And one of the most important things you can do is find out whether or not you have PFAS in your drinking water. And if so, what types and how much uh, if you're on a public water system, that information should be publicly available. If you're on a private well, you'll have to get your well tested. And that for some people can probably be cost prohibitive. But you can also go to some uh, nonprofit organization websites, such as the Environmental Working Group or Green Science Policy Institute, and get information on consumer products that are PFAS free. And you can find out about companies that have made commitments 
to eliminate PFAS from their products and processes. So you can get information, but it does require that you take that effort as an individual and it does put the burden on the consumer, which is kind of unfair. But if you live in an area that you know is impacted by PFAS, you might be concerned about whether or not you may be at risk. Some of the diseases that have been linked to PFAS exposure, we've already talked about the immune system, but there are certain types of cancer, uh, kidney and testicular are two that have been linked to PFAS exposure. Uh, Pregnancy-induced hypertension and preeclampsia are two, are, are, is another scenario. Uh, high cholesterol, uh, elevated liver enzymes are other outcomes that have been linked to PFAS exposure in human populations. And these changes have also been confirmed in studies of experimental models. Um, so one question people living in PFAS impacted communities might be, how can I find out if my disease risk has been increased as a result of my exposure? Um, you would have to go to your healthcare provider and see about doing medical screening. And there, there's a really great website for medical screening. Um, the name of the organization is the PFAS Exchange, and they have medical screening documents both for physicians and for patients. Um, if you, for example, are already at increased risk of high cholesterol because of some genetic factors or lifestyle factors, if you live in a PFAS contaminated area, that may change your risk. And so you might want to get your cholesterol tested if you haven't had it done to determine if you are seeing increases in your cholesterol. Um, I think there's uh, some really great resources from the PFAS exchange that people can use to educate themselves and to educate their physicians. Because honestly, a lot of physicians don't know a lot about environmental contaminants and that's through no fault of their own. They just don't get a lot of that in their education right. and training. Um, there's very few credit hours dedicated to toxicological training for medical students. Right, right. And, and hopefully that's changing as we move into the future, but I'll include the PFAS exchange website in the, um, podcast notes just so people can access that easily and you know before we close out what is something and i'm sure there are plenty of, of things that that come to mind but i guess what is something notable that you've learned about pfas or that you think is also not well known in the public um and is maybe kind of shocking that that you learned well a paper came out a, a few years ago that pfas was detected in dental floss and it was detected in a brand of dental floss that I regularly used. And what's interesting too about this paper is that um, uh, African-American women had higher concentrations of PFAS in their bodies. And this was associated with their use of dental floss. It tells you that there may be some, in, there may be some differences among racial and ethnic groups with respect to susceptibility wow. uh, of PFAS. I don't know if it has to do with transporters or, or you know, types of dental floss that, that people use, but I think um, we're finding that there are susceptible communities and that there are environmental justice concerns associated with PFAS, um, especially in the food packaging and food handling industries. Um, people who work in fast food, for example, or who have to eat a lot of the fast food because of socioeconomic concerns 
may be carrying a greater burden of exposure because of those socioeconomic factors. So I was, I mean, I think I've understood for a long time that people who are poor and people who are from certain um, racial and ethnic groups carry a disproportionate burden of chemical exposures in our country and around the world. Um, but I was, I was pretty saddened to learn that that was true also for PFAS. Um, and also saddened to learn that I had to switch dental floss brands because I haven't been able to find a replacement brand that I like as much. Um, right. But that's, you know, that's completely self-centered and, yeah. and I have the luxury of being able to shop around different dental floss brands. Um, but that was, those, those were both eye openers for me. Right. And I mean, I think that, you know, people noticing and realizing things like that, whether it be in dental floss or cookware and understanding the consequences of these, I think this is very much going to be a thing that as people understand it more and, you know, people understand the negative consequences of it, there's going to be a natural shift towards alternatives and people wanting to use something else. And I guess that also will influence other changes in, in how PFAS is looked at in society and how policy is, is 